0: Father, thank you for that reality, help us as we open your word this morning to grow in our understanding of what it means to live in light of that. In your precious name, Jesus, we pray, and for the sake of your name we gather this morning. Amen. Amen. Have a seat, church. Welcome this morning. Please turn to Colossians chapter 3, that's where we'll be camped out this morning. Also, if uh, when you came in, you missed the tables with the communion elements and you don't have that, now would be a great time to grab that. Or uh, for your convenience, you can just stick your hand up in the air and Mr. Jeff Clossy would be delighted to serve you at your seat because that's how we roll around here. We aim to please. I hope you all enjoyed this morning the gift that we had all been hoping for an extra hour of 2020. Just what we all needed. Um, the uh, I did enjoy the extra sleep. I asked for a service. Any, anybody uh, get up, get all ready, only then to too late realize you missed out on an hour of sleep because you forgot to change your clocks? No? Nobody does that anymore. Thank you technology, right? We all have these things that automatically switch for us, and so they're... They're dummy proof, which I appreciate because uh, I'm often a dummy when it comes to those things. So, hopefully, you're in Colossians chapter 3, ready to roll. Um, last week, Jeff uh, Clossy did what I felt like was a phenomenal job of unpacking verses 5 through 11. And so, we're going to go uh, continue on and, and hit verses 12 through 17. And arguably, you can't really separate those sections. They, they go hand in glove, really. And as Jeff alluded to last week, 12 through 17 is, in many respects, the solution to 5 through 12. And, and I'll explain what you mean. Jeff and I talked about it a little bit this week during the podcast, um, uh, but we talked about the difference between stopping a thing versus replacing a thing. That, that simply not doing a certain sin or activity or trying not to do that thing typically just creates a vacuum that is going to be filled with something. It's going to be filled with something. And neuroscientists uh, have finally caught up to what Jesus said 2,000 years ago and and they will argue that according to our brain chemistry, you never truly stop a habit. You only ever replace it with a different habit. So 2,000 years ago, Jesus talked about the same idea. The way he communicated it was, when an unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it says, I will return to the house from which I came. And when it comes, it will find the house empty, swept, and put in order. And then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they will enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. Now, because this illustration is super creepy, we don't typically camp out there, right? We quickly move on to something that's a little more palatable, and uh, and so we don't dwell on this passage. But the reality is Jesus is addressing a point that is true of demons, literally, but also our desires and our habits. That simply removing one creates space where something else is going to fill that in. And so we can't just... The, the, the lesser love, the lesser desire, that heart idol that is producing that sinful behavior can't simply be removed. It must be replaced with a greater love, a greater desire, ultimately with the all-powerful idol crusher who then prevents that space from being filled in with something even more destructive. We must take off, as Jeff talked about last week, but also put on. If we take off without putting on, we are naked, right? Which just creates a whole other set of problems. And, and Paul is, is, makes perfect sense, I believe, when, when he outlines for us, we, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. We have to do both Because in taking off, as Jeff said last week, that is taking off the dehumanizing practices that have taken over our lives and replacing them with rehumanizing practices. So that is what we are after. C.S. Lewis, of course, brilliantly put it in his famous book, Mere Christianity, when he was talking about putting on the new self or putting on Christ, he said it like this, I want to be clear that this is not one among many jobs that a christian can do and this is not a sort of special exercise for the top class it is the whole of christianity christianity offers nothing else at all so what c.s lewis is addressing is putting on christ putting on the new self is not one optional aspect of christianity Anything other than that is some form of human practices and human tradition that we have come up with that is not ultimately going to have any eternal value. The whole of Christianity is becoming formed into the likeness of Christ, and so we need to know what does that actually look like? How do we do that, right? So what we're going to do is, because I believe Paul answers the question for us in this letter, we're going to look first at what is the Basis or the foundation of the new self? What is the motivation for putting on the new self? What is the fuel that energizes and empowers this pursuit? So we start in verse 12 where it says, We put on then, okay, so that's where we're putting on the new self, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. This is our foundation. We are chosen by God, set apart for design purpose, for divine purpose, rather. We are also designed by him, so that works too. And we are dearly and deeply beloved by him. What if, church, instead of trying to prove or convince ourselves that we are right, we put all of that same effort into reminding ourselves that we are beloved. Do you hear the difference? Can you imagine the difference in what that produces? The person who is convinced of their own rightness is a very different person than the one who is convinced that they are beloved. Because the decisions that we make, and the way that we handle relationships when the basis of our confidence is that I am right leads to a very different destination than when you make decisions and handle relationships based on the confidence that you are dearly and deeply known and loved and accepted. I don't feel like we have to think about it too hard to think about which person would we rather spend time with. Which person would we rather be led by? Which person would we rather be married to? As the people of God, we were created and saved and commanded and empowered to be the latter, to be the second one. Verse 12, as People God has chosen to set apart for divine use, dearly and deeply loved. That's the basis. That's the foundation. Therefore, adorn yourself in this way. Put this on. Our clothes are the things that cover us completely and, and that is obviously on display to everyone else. And so Paul is using this picture to say this is what we should adorn ourselves with. This is what should be on display to everyone around us, compassion, hearts filled with compassion. Compassion requires true empathy. Not sympathy, but empathy. Not, oh, I feel so bad for you, but I can, I can understand a little bit maybe of what you're feeling. And I can look through the unhealthy responses to that hurt, to those fears, to that li- those lies that are beneath that, because I know that I am deeply loved in spite of the wounds and the fears and the lies that have warped my own heart. And therefore, I can love you in the midst of yours. That is what compassion looks like. You can't have it without empathy. And then he goes on, kindness, humility, meekness. Meekness is a word that always kind of weirds us out. It's not, it's not weakness. It is actually power and confidence under complete control. And that that power and control is used in order to serve and care for and love others exactly the way we see our Jesus doing. And then finally, everyone's favorite, Patience. And if we look at that and we go, well, what, what does patience really mean, right? What is he expecting of us in that? I think you can make a strong argument that what he means is verse 13. Patience as defined as bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. I well, think yeah, that's a pretty legit definition of patience. I know what it doesn't mean is being okay with the things that I'm okay with from the people I'm okay with from. That is not what it means. Hundreds of years ago, Thomas Akempis poetically put it this way, he is not truly patient, who is willing to suffer only so much as he thinks good and from whom he pleases. That's not patient. However, we also don't define patience as like a white-knuckled stuffing of barely suppressed rage. That then through gritted teeth I say, sure, I'd be happy to help you with that thing again. Those aren't patience. I mean, they're good. By all means, suppress the rage, but that's not how we're defining patience. What, What it is is coming alongside that person, genuinely actually serving that other person by helping them bear their burdens with them and actually forgiving them of those things. And then above all of these, above all these, we put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. That's good stuff. When we when we refuse or, or it seems impossible to do the second half of verse 12, it is because we do not believe the first half of verse 12. We have to go back to that foundation because if what I'm trusting in is my own rightness, that will never result in compassion, kindness, kindness, humility, or love. It can't because my rightness means you are wrong, which means I am above you. It is self-exalting by definition and therefore idolatry, which is never going to produce the fruit of the Spirit in us. That must be put off. That's part of the old self That in Christ and because of Christ, we put aside along with all of its assumptions and habits and replace that with an active, intentional, daily habit of reminding yourself of your Father's inexplicable love for you right where you are and the fact that he does not want you to stay right where you are, but wants you and I to continue to be renewed day by day and further conformed into the image of our Jesus. Forgetting that makes these verses impossible. Believing that, remembering that, meditating on this truth, soaking ourselves in the endlessly warm and aromatic pool that is God's acceptance and affirmation that is only found in Jesus, produces in us love and empathy, which is required for compassion and kindness. An awareness that we do not deserve and have not earned the love that he gives us and that we can never come close to even scratching the surface of a scratch on the surface of God's infinite mercy and grace and love and compassion and wisdom produces in us humility and meekness and patience. And when we all believe this enough to actually pursue it, it changes the entire culture of a church and as a result, a community. A.W. Tozer put it like this. It's a bit long, but hang with me. It's pretty fantastic, I think. He said, The church should be a healthy, fruitful vineyard that will bring honor to Christ, a church after Christ's own heart. Among the people should be a beautiful simplicity and a radiant Christian love so that it would be impossible to find gossips and complainers. There should be a feeling of humble reverence and an air of joyous informality where each one esteems others better than himself or herself and where everyone is willing to serve but no one jockeys for position. Childlike candor without duplicity or dishonesty should mark the church and the presence of Christ should be felt and the fragrance of his garments smelled by his beloved. Prayers should be answered so regularly that we would think nothing of it. It would be common because God is God and we are his people. When necessary, miracles would not be uncommon. Is that, in light of scripture, unreasonable and undesirable to expect of the church? Is there something better? If there is something better, you name it. I mean, how good is that, right? How do we live that way? How do we live as people marked by this? Because according to Scripture, that is neither unreasonable nor should that be unexpected of the people of God. So how does that become normative for us? First, we must believe it. We must believe that the church that Jesus promises actually can be a real thing. Second, we must want it. I need to want His church more than I want our church. Thirdly, we must choose it. It can only happen when we decide to actually take the required action to see it happen. And lastly, we know that we believe it and want it and choose it when we as a church intentionally pursue it. I know that many of us want that desperately and fight daily to live like this and pray that our church would look like this. And to you, to your hearts, beloved by God and called according to his purpose, take courage because we are in this together and he is in this with us. So, what does this intentional pursuit look like? I think it looks like verses 15 through 17. Where Paul says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Letting the peace of Christ rule your hearts. When anything else is truly ruling my heart, these things will seem impossible or even undesirable. I might not even want these things. When it is Christ that is truly ruling my heart, when it is His peace, when it is His love that is driving my desires, then these things become the only rational response to that. Of course, I would want to be compassionate. Look at the compassion Christ has shown for me. Of course, I would want to be patient. At the limitless patience that my heavenly father shows me. It's the only rational response. So how do we do that? Well, I think one of the primary ways that we do that is how he finishes the verse and be thankful. Three times in three verses, Paul commands thankfulness, commands it. How often do you think of being thankful as a command? If you're like me, not that often. We tend to misinterpret thankfulness or thanksgiving the same way that we do love, right? I'll know it when I feel it. False. Nonsense. Dirty lie from the enemy of our souls. It's not a feeling. It is a a direction of our hearts. It is an intentional choice to direct it towards a certain end. In many circumstances, the reality is the only thing that I have control of in that whole circumstance is my response to it and whether or not I choose thankfulness in it or complaining and discouragement. That's often the only thing I have control over in that, whether or not I'm going to choose to be thankful in it. And it just is so easy to believe the lie. I'll say, well, I'm reading that verse and tell you what, I would be thankful if God would just make his peace rule my heart. We're not reading carefully enough then because what does Paul say at the beginning of verse 15? Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. He says we have to let that happen. I'm not waiting for God to bestow on me his peace. It's already there. I just have to get out of the way and stop being an obstacle to it ruling my heart. One of the most essential ways that we do this is by being thankful, by choosing thankfulness. Just this last Tuesday morning, my morning was not going as I would have hoped my head it was just swimming with issues that were causing me discouragement and anxiety honestly i could I could hardly think straight. I was supposed to be working on some message prep and then, and some other projects that we have coming up and I just I could not concentrate I was just my head and heart was so cluttered. And and I knew, okay, this is clearly not the peace of Christ ruling in my heart. And so I prayed and I'm asking, Father, please take this away from me. Make your peace rule in my heart. Nothing. I'm still anxious. I'm still frustrated. I'm still so distracted. I can't focus. Please, Father, please clear my cluttered head. Clear my cluttered heart. And what I heard is, be thankful. I'm thinking, how am I supposed to do that? Like, that's the whole problem. My heart is just filled with discord and distraction. How am I supposed to be thankful right now? I would be, if you would answer my prayer, give me your peace. Be thankful, I heard. So I'm like, all right, I'll be thankful. I got out my pencil. I had a super good attitude about it. (laughs) Got my pad. All right, let's be thankful, Jesus. And I I start just writing down people in my life that I was grateful that the Father has placed in my life. People who encourage me and correct me and love me because they know me and they want to see more of Jesus in me. People who are trying to look as much like Jesus or much harder, trying much harder than I am and therefore are encouraging or inspirational to me. And then I wrote down a couple of things that my Heavenly Father has been teaching me over the last few weeks, things that have been answers to longstanding questions or things that felt very relevant in the, the current circumstance that I was in that I was just so grateful that you would teach me. You know what happened to my anxiety? Beats me. I forgot all about it. I, I was just too busy basking in the joy of my Heavenly Father's extraordinary provision and super specific personal love for me. And filling my mind with those things. Exp- all the lesser things I just forgot about them my father's answer to my prayer was to give me the response that I needed to engage in in order to let his peace rule my heart I didn't need him to give it because his peace does not ever go away. His Holy Spirit does not leave us until we act good enough to get him back or invite him in the right way so that he will come back. He is always there. I just typically don't allow him to control anything in me because my heart is just too cluttered with so much garbage and nonsense that I can't hear or feel his care I need to let that peace rule my heart. Don't focus on everything that is wrong with the picture. Focus on what is right. Dwell on that first half of verse 12. Who you are, who he declares you are in Christ and through Christ. Christ. That's a crucial part of setting our eyes on things above and not fixating on things that are on the earth, like Jay talked about two weeks ago. And if your opinion is, sounds great, Robbie, but there's nothing good in my life. God is doing nothing. He is providing nothing. If that is my response, I am not being a realist. I have a very skewed and distorted picture, and I need the help of somebody who knows me and loves me to come alongside me and help me see what I am blinded to right now. And now, I feel like it's important to be clear. I am not suggesting dropping platitudes on your friend, because that's the worst. When somebody's really hurting, when somebody is really struggling with something, you walk into my office and I have an axe buried into my head. For the love of all that is good and decent, do not say something like, Chin up, it could be worse. Mm. I mean, I guess so. I suppose an asteroid could smash my house to bits also. But in lieu of that still have this axe buried in my head which isn't great rather say acknowledge this circumstance around you this sin that has you enslaved that sin of that other person that is affecting you so directly is legitimately bad and I am sorry Let's together look for what is equally legitimately good in where your Father is demonstrating His very specific provision and love for you in this thing. His blessing. Where do you see the Father demonstrating His presence, His help in the middle of this? We need that for each other. Next, let the word of Christ Dwell in you richly. I love this word, richly, abundantly, overflowing into everything. And I also love that word, dwell. Let the word of Christ dwell in you. Take up residence in you. He's moving in with all his stuff. He's not visiting. He's repainting the room and hanging stuff on the wall because he intends to stick around. And not gets stored up in the attic of my mind where it will collect dust and cobwebs, but he takes up active residence in the day-to-day of my kitchen, of my bedroom, of my family room, of my garage, of my office, and everything else. He is an active participant, dwelling in me richly, overflowing in everything that I am doing and saying. And as a result, that becomes the basis of most of my conversations, right? Because that's on the forefront of my mind. And so it then becomes very natural that we would be teaching and admonishing or encouraging or correcting one another in all wisdom. So when it says teaching and admonishing, sometimes certain words in Scripture can make us a little nervous. This is not a call to a specific office but the task of every single member of the church. If we go back to the beginning of chapter 3, the qualification is if you have been raised with Christ. That's the qualifier. And the motivation is since you have been chosen and set apart for divine purpose by the God who dearly loves you, therefore this stuff. So I want to encourage those of you who feel like you don't have the right to say anything because you don't know everything. That you're not in a position to teach others or to lovingly correct someone else because you still feel like you have so much to learn or because you have not been given a specific role. Paul says otherwise. Implicit in this command to teach and correct is that we must also be eager to receive teaching and correction. So if I don't think that I still need to be taught and to be corrected, I am actually the one who is disqualified from teaching. I don't want anybody to teach who thinks they know everything. Because all that means is you know nothing. Certainly not about God and not Scripture. Do not be discouraged, church, into thinking that not knowing everything somehow disqualifies you from sharing with others what you do know. That is, in fact, one of the most important things that qualifies you. Did God teach you something? Have you been raised with Christ? Then you are called to teach and gently correct one another. It must go both ways. It is is both ways. We can feel hesitant to obey Paul's encouragement because we think that first we need to reach some goal that is actually super unbiblical. The person who believes that they have arrived, that they no longer need to be taught because of all that they have learned or all that they have experienced, or that they should no longer be corrected or only corrected by certain people that they deem worthy to correct them, do not believe that because they are so spiritually mature or because they are such a good leader. The Bible is quite clear that if I think that, I believe that because I am a fool. And I am misleading myself and others. Here's the proverb say. Whoever heeds instruction is on the path to life. He who rejects correction leads others astray. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates correction is stupid. <laughs> that was pretty straightforward. The ear that listens To life-giving correction will dwell among the wise. Whoever ignores instruction despises himself, but he who listens to correction gains intelligence. A rebuke goes deeper into a man of understanding than 100 blows into a fool. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, which requires listening to others, especially those you disagree with but only in expressing his opinion. The wisest person of his age, and arguably one of the wisest people in history, continues to come back over and over again to this idea of the importance of being teachable and correctable. And that if you aren't, it is the definition of foolishness. And arguably, it is when he forgot these things that Solomon completely came off the rails. I am thankful, brother and sister, that you are not a fool. I do not want you to think the only way that you become qualified to teach others what the Heavenly Father has taught you is that first you must become a fool in order to do so. What I want you to understand is that your humility in in your belief that you lack full knowledge is in fact wisdom. It is the fruit of spiritual maturity that compels a person to say, I do not know. And the fruit of compassion and humility and patience and kindness that compels us to first say, Help me to better understand, I have much to learn. And then, when and if the time comes, to wisely, gently teach or correct by saying in humility, Here's something that God has demonstrated to or taught me. By his grace, maybe you can be blessed by this as well. Church, the last thing that the world needs right now is more people convinced that they are right. We desperately need people that know that they are deeply known and loved. That transforms a heart and a family and a church, and a community. And so together we teach one another and we gently and lovingly correct one another. And one of the most fun ways, in my opinion, that we do that is by singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That's why we do all three of those here at FAITH. We sing scripture, we sing teaching songs, which is what hymns are, and they're meant to teach, and we sing spiritual songs or responsive songs, repl- reflective songs, celebratory songs. We do all of those because scripture commands us and because all of those are a balm to our soul and a delight and a gift from our Father. And then lastly, whatever you do, Whatever you say, do so in honor of and as a representative of our Jesus. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of our Lord Jesus. I understand. Many of you may hear this and think, I mean, that's impossible. We, we can't do that, it's least of all now. We can't be that way now. Do you not see what is going on in the world around us? Have you looked at social media lately? Have you seen what's going on in the news? We can't do that. The world around us is coming apart at the seams. Lawlessness and rejection of Christ abounds. How can we possibly, in the face of that, respond in meekness? and humility, and compassion, and kindness in the face of such evil. I know. So does Jesus. Do do you honestly believe that he is surprised by any of this? That he didn't see this coming? That it wasn't in many ways much worse as these words were penned? And yet what Jesus tells us in Matthew 24, and many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. Church, we must actively, intentionally fight against our love growing cold. We must fight against the mission and message of Jesus being set aside because of fear or self preservation. We must never fall into the trap of believing that the only way to obey Scripture is to reject Scripture. Or that the only way to obey Jesus is to ignore what he says is exactly the way the citizens of his kingdom live and the way that he promises evil is actually conquered. Rather than allowing the state of the world to let our love grow cold, church, let the seemingly overwhelming darkness, because it's only seemingly, It isn't really, but the seemingly overwhelming darkness that is around us motivate us to passionately and intentionally stoke that precious ember of love until it catches into a blaze and that warming light of love emanating from the people of God who are clothed in compassion and kindness and meekness and patience and humility proclaiming the excellencies of him who has carried us out of darkness and placed us into his marvelous light, would chase the darkness out of our hearts and out of our homes and out of our churches and out of our communities and ultimately out of the world to the glory of our heavenly Father and the joy of his creation. Our Jesus says, in this world you will have tribulation, but take Heart, I have overcome the world. Not through political power, not by the sword, but by clothing himself in compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience and love. The incarnate God of the universe becoming a servant and submitting himself even to the point of death on the cross. That is our picture. That is our model. And that is the way he has already conquered the evil that we fear. And so, we remember together. Just precisely how much we have to be eternally thankful for. Just how much we are dearly and deeply loved by what our Jesus demonstrated and accomplished for us by his life, his death, and his resurrection. He freely gives his body, broken for us, to eat and remember him. And he willingly gives his blood. Poured out to establish the new covenant of grace. And so together, church, drink and remember him, our Jesus. Jesus, please do all that you must to make us look and love like you. That we would be your Church, that the light of your love would clothe us in your character for your glory, for our joy, and for the good of your world. Amen.